Uh, we will get started on the question period pretty soon. Even though travel went a little bit long, we will still keep our time slot open for question. Uh, before we get there, I should mention that uh, SACPA is planning on doing a series of talks about sustainability and um, mitigating climate change. Uh, what are the what are the issues on the table? What how can they be overcome? There's all kinds of technology out there that could be applied. Uh, it's just a matter of the will to do it. So next week we have a fellow named Bruce Wilson coming to speak about uh, transitioning to a low-carbon future and a new economy. What are the main barriers? He will talk about a lot of things, I'm sure, but one of the things he will talk about is uh, hydrogen, which is a fuel that is quite, that quite possibly could be made from renewable energy when the wind blows and the sunshine and stored and used uh, as a storage and, and burned later. So he will concentrate on that, I believe. Uh, so yeah, over the next uh, few months, uh, for the rest of the spring, uh, we will have different speakers on that, on that particular topic, uh, uh, sustainability and, and transitioning to a different uh, different power of how, how the world is going to be powered. So, uh, and also migration, we'll have, we'll have a speak on migration, specifically on migration, I think. So yeah, keep coming back to SACPA and uh, you'll be well informed. Uh, so now I'd like to invite Trevor back up to the podium uh, to answer the hard questions. Uh, Please uh, be brief in your abstract, but uh, feel free to ask a couple of questions uh, when you're there and state your name before you ask the question, please. Thank you. Thank you, Knud. I, I should perhaps just say, based on the little chat we were having at our table at lunch, that these sustainable de development goals it's not the UN that is supposed to be paying for all these things. Each of the countries that agreed to the goals, and that's unanimous, including Canada, have to obtain those goals themselves. They have to reach them, they have to pay for them, but developing countries need help. So the UN asks countries to increase their contributions to the UN so that it could provide that help to those developing countries that needed it. So, sir, please, go ahead. Terry Shillington. Um, Trevor, thank you for presenting those um, 17 goals. It was quite enlightening. Uh, I have a comment or a lament to make, <clears throat> but I wonder if you would give me the wording of number 13 again. Referring to the climate change one, of course. Yeah, let me give you the exact wording. Climate action. 
take urgent action to combat climate change and its impacts, plural, impacts. I was just going to comment that that's kind of a faith statement that most people don't hold, uh, that many people do not hold. We live in a province that has elected a government, for example, that uh, clearly does not hold that conviction. And uh, <clears throat> I have neighbors who don't. And uh, it's just a couple of weeks ago that a letter to the editor came in uh, scorning what he referred to as uh, climate hysteria. Uh, and I believe the writer has a PhD. So it's just my observation that uh, we don't seem to have any consensus on the truth of uh, item number 13. A and uh, I, I believe that we'll not fix the, cl the, cl the, the, the climate of the globe you know, by individuals recycling newspapers if they're committed to that. This is collective action that we need to take. And there just is no consensus, even in a fairly educated country like Canada and Alberta, that <clears throat> this is even a crisis. So. Uh, as I say, I have an observation and a lament to make, and I invite you to make s some sensible comment <laughs> in response. Yeah. Right, well, this is a very contentious issue in Alberta. Of course, Alberta doesn't represent Canada, and it's Canada that is represented at the UN. So it's our federal government that projects our policies Canadian policies to the UN. Now, it is a contentious issue between Alberta and, uh, and uh, our current federal government, that's for sure. Uh, I think the consensus, though, is that we move over to sustainable, uh, renewable energy as quickly as we can. At the same time, we need the money from our natural resources, oil and gas, to pay for that and for other things. Uh, it's not an even or situation. I think a timing situation there, and also we know. And Canada is not, the, or rather Alberta, is not the only part of the world that's keen on keeping on the, on the whole oil and gas. Saudi Arabia is keen on that too, and the oil producing countries are. But then look at Norway. There's an example. Now, you may not be happy with that answer, but that, that's my answer. Hi, Trevor, Maria Fitzpatrick, and thank you for your presentation. And my um, question is along the same lines as uh, Terry, because I believe to change globally, we have to act locally. And as Terry said, we don't seem to have a consensus that first of all, we even have a problem and if you look around Lethbridge, that uh, conversation about climate change uh, shows the division. So my question to you is, what can we do locally? And I'm telling you, I'm out on those lines when we're uh, trying to inform our politicians about what we want. Uh, what can we do locally, first of all, to get the actual truth information out to everybody. Second part of that is, how do we get them to listen to it, and how do we get them to take action? Thank you. Right, okay. Um, when you go back home, just, and you switch on your computer, look at the headlines on the BBC World News today, and I think that will give you your answer 
in terms of the situation globally. Now, as I said in response to the previous question, Alberta is not the only part of a country that has oil and gas and wants to preserve it. Okay, but it's in the minority. And even the oil and gas companies recognize that. I think if you look at that BBC World headline news today, you'll get what the majority of, of the world is thinking on that, but there are exceptions. In terms of getting out on the street, I think that it's not just, well, I think we have a problem with people, not just here in, in Lethbridge or Canada, but in many parts of the world where there is disenchantment with our governments. We are not satisfied with what our governments are doing. We are educated people, we know what is going on. The internet helps a lot on that. And we see inaction on the part of our governments. So when we see that, as Greta Thunberg does, she gets her peers out, and we people need to get out and demonstrate our dissatisfaction with our government. That includes our provincial government and our national government. Uh, you know, I'm afraid governments really just are not cutting it these days, and people, not just here, but all over the world, are getting out on the streets, and that's what we have to do. But it's no good just getting out on the streets and having your photo taken. You have to have a list of your demands that has to be presented to your MLA or your MP, and you have to, you, you, you keep after them until this, to see that there's follow-up action. I have to tell you that our previous MP, Rick Casson, when we had uh, rallies here against the Iraq war, Iraq war, right, and we demonstrated outside his office, a couple of weeks later, he sent me uh, his letter that he had written to the foreign minister telling him that there had never been so many people outside his office demonstrating against, in this case, the Iraq war. And you know what Canada's position was. I'm not sure we tipped it. It's probably uh, um, Jean Chrétien's wife that tipped it in terms of more influence. But that's what we have to do. Yes, please. Hi, Hi Trevor. Thanks very much uh, for your presentation, Laurie Schultz. Um, I have a couple of questions, and one does is similar to Maria's, in that goal number 17 is about partnerships. And so I'm curious as to, well, first of all, I'm curious as to how those partnerships take the goal and how it trickles down to action. And I guess it's related to Maria's question in that can that goal be implemented differently? Does it need to be implemented differently uh, to, to get out of that boiling pot of water? Thank you. Goal number 17, <coughs> in my opinion, was probably left until right at the end because Again, in my opinion, I'm not speaking for the UN, it's my personal opinion, is a bit of a cop-out. 
it's basically the say saying that we need to partner with the private sector, with industry, in order to get done what we've been able to not do without them. So you're finding increasingly that partnership arrangements, some of which are excellent and working extremely well, that the UN, UN agencies, whether it be in health, whether it be in agriculture, whether it be in food, are partnering with private sector companies and getting better results than, 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 than before. So that's what that goal is all about. Now, the other thing I should say is I came to the UN from the private sector and I have a, health, a strong respect for the private sector and there is such a thing as corporate responsibility. I mean, there are a lot of problems, that's for sure, but I am not prepared to say, oh God, private sector, therefore no good. No way. So meaningful partnership arrangements between intergovernmental organizations and NGOs and private sector is we, it's working in many, many areas. So that's what that goal is all about. Hi, Trevor Henning Mundley here. Um, in connection with the 17 goals, just quoting a little bit from a poem, I think it was called Andrea del Sarte, uh, Sarte um, but a man's reach should exceed his grasp, or what's a heaven for, I'm not going to be religious here. The goals look very utopian. I realize that it, one, so one sets goals in the hope of achieving partway there, but aren't they all too naive, every single one of those? I think that some In the time frame set. Well, that is an important rider in the yeah. time frame set. And I think that a lot of people will agree with you but you're not in the majority. And, I mean, we're just caring people that with our Western democratic system really are supposed to get our points across to the people that represent us and get them into the people that govern us. And certainly Canada played a major role in framing these goals. It's not the UN that framed these goals. Now, perhaps I should clarify that the Millennium Development Goals, eight of them, to, ex to eradicate extreme poverty by 2015 were put together by the UN, meaning UN staff like me. Okay? Those were the Millennium Development Goals, and they haven't worked. The Sustainable Development Goals were put together by each government after a series of meetings, and certainly the UN helped write the things up, but they play the secretariat role. So it is our governments that have decided on these goals, not the UN. Thank you. Hello, Trevor. Thank you for your presentation. Uh, you mentioned Norway. Norway actually came to Alberta to adopt 
our heritage fund formula when we first initiated it. And they, being oil rich, adopted it and more significantly than Alberta because we had a draw on it eventually for operations and so forth. But Norway's objective is to have no nothing but electric cars by 2025. They can do that because they have this vast pool of oil revenue, oil generated revenue, so that they can afford to subsidize that transition to electric. And if you measure the footprints in the CO2, etc., etc., to even manufacture a single electric car, there's a heck of a big CO2 and other footprints. Sorry. Right, thanks. Yeah, Norway, of course, is one of the countries that does live up to it. It puts its, its money where its mouth is in terms of its contributions and in terms of its wishes to meet the goals that its government sets. And some governments, and I guess in this case the Norwegian, are much wiser in terms of their heritage funds. Now that's not to say that oil and gas is not going to continue to play an important role in the economies of quite a lot of countries. But there is recognition that we are about to tip over the balance and get ourselves into a position that we can't reverse. Please. Michelle Walker, and I just want to ask about the um, combination of the migration with the poverty. And is there, what would you, just to start, where would you start to kind of mitigate, mitigate that? Is there one step that, that our government could take besides throwing money at something that doesn't seem to work when it's the climate and everything else? Okay, Does you, are you trying to get at how do we put together order into the chaos? One of the things we have to do is to invest far more heavily in terms of development in developing countries. You know, some countries, developing countries, are doing just fine. They don't need any help. They're doing extremely well. In fact, up until a few years ago, China would say, oh, we're a developing country. Well, it's quite quiet on that these days, and you see it as the emerging superpower now that the US has left the vacuum and Europe is in a mess. So we have to invest in developing countries. Then we have to all get together around the table and agree that we will take joint measures on what to do to control the flow of migrants. We have to recognize that although um, displaced persons by the climate in their countries, they're not refugees, they're called internally displaced people if they stay in their country or they're economic migrants. We have to recognize that these people in the boat coming across the Mediterranean, half of them drowning en route, 
you know, are doing that out of desperation. They actually do want to live. So the global compact takes note of that, the climate, refugees, but they're not real refugees yet, and economic migrants, and then we share the load out, we reduce the flow and share it out. Now, every country, and very definitely this one, it, uh, uh, maintains its own sovereignty in terms of whether it likes the proposals to accept refugees and migrants or not. That's how the, well, the UN is built on, the respect for countries' individual sovereignty and non-interference in internal affairs. So we've got to get around the table and agree because it's a reality. So yeah, it's all happening. Uh, and we have a plan. It's 164 countries have agreed to it, including Canada. In fact, Canada was one of the principal writers of the plan. But a lot of countries in Europe and the US don't agree with it at this time. Of course, we'll see after the next election. Yeah, please. Hi, Dave Major. Um, I'd like to make a couple of comments on some climate change issues. First of all, the data is there. It's all out in the open. The problem is climate deniers or climate believers is like a religion. It's a belief system. It's not a fact system. So the, the information is there. It's just a matter of how people will accept it. And, you know, it's hard to change pers a person's beliefs. The second point is I want to comment on this ridiculous argument that it takes more CO2 to build a solar panel than the solar panel will produce in its lifetime. It's just an absolutely ridiculous argument. And the other thing, John, is that it probably takes just as much or more carbon to build an internal combustion car than an electric car. So anyway, my question is totally different. You didn't comment very much, but I think it it, it influences governments and how much they want to donate to the UN. But how much is corruption involved in, in the distribution of the, the food aid? Well, in response to your question, there is corruption in food aid. Um, <clears throat> When the UN was first established, and certainly up until about 20 years ago, all we used to do was turn over the aid which governments, including Canada, CEDA in those days, gave to the UN. We would um, take Canadian food, um, and we would pass it over to a government agency and they would distribute the food. So corruption varied depending upon the country. In countries where there was very little corruption, then there was very little corruption on food aid. In countries where there was lots of corruption, and certainly that used to exist in many countries of the world, um, there was lots of corruption on food aid. But number one, countries have tightened up the rules themselves. So there is less corruption 
within governments these days. Number two, the UN expanded its staff very considerably. My days, there were about 1,800 people in the World Food Program. Today, there are 18,000. And we do a lot of the distribution ourselves. So the corruption is certainly not reduced to zero because we have found even some of our own staff corrupt. But we don't tolerate that at all. They're fired right away. So corruption is cut down very considerably. But we have to also reach a balance that we are not doing everything ourselves and spoon-feeding people that need food in a particular country. It's the governments of those countries that are responsible for their people. So I'm not worried about the levels of corruption at all. In, in my days, I was one of the harshest critics of this kind of thing. Uh, we're far more efficient than we used to be. Thank you. Bev Mundell-Atherstone. Thanks, Trevor. That was very enlightening, although terribly tragic. Okay, I have two questions. <clears throat> One is in relation to the rise of populism, not only in our own country, but also in other countries, uh, and what that rise in populism um, is doing in relation to these 17 points. Um, we see right now in, in Alberta an increasing gap between rich and poor, and we see that the social determinants of health are um, being eroded by the cuts. Uh, the second question relates to population. You mentioned that the population of Africa is anticipated to double by 2050. Um, we, the research shows that if the GDP of the country goes up, usually the population goes down. Also, education of women goes up, population goes down. Is there something specifically that the UN is recommending to countries that would help to achieve a lower population on the planet? Thank you. Two important questions. Um, populism, which is not just in the US, it's spread over much of Europe, it's spread over much of Asia, and parts of Africa too. We tend to sort of just look at what's happening in our own backyard, but it's a global uh, wave, I think I would put it, describe it at this time. That has a serious impact on all of the sustainable development goals, because it basically means countries are not going to pay up the contributions that they announced. They're going to hold them back. That means the UN cannot move in the least developed countries on helping them achieve or move towards the goals. So um, that, I think, is the situation in terms of your first question. The second one is extremely important. We've overpopulated the planet. The countries in the Sahel, I showed the map up, countries from Mauritania across to Chad, south of the Sahara, are among those that have the highest 
um, birth rates in the world. You're absolutely correct that as um, income goes up, the number of, uh, of um, the total fertility rate goes down. Um, I uh, spent five years with an NGO after I retired from the UN in family planning and women's reproductive health. And I have to tell you, the family planning is just the other side of the food aid coin because you help people reduce, you help people with family planning and that is uh, an enormous improvement to their own income and their own health. So that's absolutely something to support. Yes, sir. will get to be like you were and have feet on the ground uh, in these areas. I'd like to ask you what you think about what's happened in uh, Ethiopia, Sudan, and Eritrea. Ethiopia's had a big sea change a couple of years ago. Sudan's gone undergone the last year. And Eritrea really hasn't changed in 30 years. Okay, Ethiopia <coughs> is doing well at the moment in terms of political stability and is making the gains that for the last 20 years, let me see, 20, we're back to the Ethiopia famine in 84, which was the big famine that really woke the world up to what is happening outside our own backyards. Um, Ethiopia has made gains. It's had to deal with uh, lots of political volatility. It is by no means stable because the new government has only been in power for um, a year or so. But it's not whereas before we used to think, oh God, famine. Well, years ago, it was India and China. I mean, really years ago, a century ago. Then, 84 Ethiopia, that's what we thought of. Not anymore. And they've done extremely well in terms of building up the, the government, civil service and what have you, far more efficient. But it's not out of the woods. Sudan has just gone through its 20-year convulsion. It's gotten rid of... Omar Bashir, who was the president for uh, 20 years or more, uh, I actually was able to get on with him. Um, he PNG'd the, my predecessor, the head of the UN in Sudan, and he wouldn't see any, the British ambassador, he wouldn't see the American ambassador, and he's a, a former soldier, and we were actually able to talk to each other. But he's been chopped, he's off. I mean, he became a dictator. There's a new government, it's still very fragile. Meanwhile, uh, half, not half, two-thirds of the country is, of what it was, is Sudan, and we've had South Sudan for um, four or five years, something like that. Uh, I was heavily involved in the middle of the South Sudan War uh, years ago. It is in a terrible shape. It's now um, uh, facing 
um, serious, serious starvation. And that's one of the countries we're going to read a lot more about. You have a tribal war between the Dinkas and the Nuers. The government are um, Dinkas and the Nuer tribe with the rebels. They, although they've agreed, though they're in a, in a ceasefire at the moment, they'll start up again soon. So volatile. Eritrea, as you say, hasn't changed much since it was uh, created. And I was the first UN representative to Eritrea after its 30-year war with Ethiopia. Uh, actually, when I compare where it's been the most difficult place I've ever worked, people think it was North Korea. Not true. It was Eritrea. Eritrea thought that after they beat the Ethiopians and became independent, all they had to do was just say, we need this, we need that, we want the accountability, please don't talk about that, we're an independent country. Isaiah Safawerki, who was a rebel, became the president, is still the president for 30 years or more, and it's a dictatorship, and lots of those people that you see on the boats trying to get across the Mediterranean are Eritreans. So Eritrea, no developments. It's not starving to death, but um, politically, it's a mess. We'll allow one more question, and Laura, you get to do it. Okay, so Trevor, with regards to population, uh, um, and the goals around women and children and family planning. Is the UN planning or would the plan to directly deliver contraceptives to the women, uh, is it in the works in the same way as you deliver food? Melinda Gates has just um, written a book um, about that, but if you could just comment on that. Very good question. I have to say that when I worked for uh, an NGO, social marketing contraceptives, I found it far more efficient than dishing out free food aid. And as I said, it's the other side of the coin. So I'd recommended to the World Food Program that we actually start dishing out condoms along with the food. We also recommended pills as well. We actually got agreement on condoms, but we didn't get agreement on pills. The reason we didn't get agreement on pills is because the doctor's supposed to examine the woman and prescribe them in much of the world. That's the rule, okay? It's not universal by any means. Uh, the UN Women and UNFPA, which is the United Nations Family Planning Association, wanted pills, and I was certainly supporting pills, right? Um, it's happening. But because of the US position, which has actually withdrawn even support from the whole agency, meaning not just a declaration, we're no longer apart, no money coming either, said, if you do that, we, we, you're out. 
So we're doing it, but we're doing it through the back door, through NGOs, so that they, the women themselves are actually getting not just food and, and pills, but food and a few other health things and pills. So it's happening. But it's still, we have to be careful. Okay, Trevor, thank you very much for your talk and your answers. Uh, have you got a question for the audience to ponder as, uh, as you leave the podium? Yes, I do. If we work together, we can do it. <laughs>